Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. We're continuing in our series called Favor with Kings. It's uh, out of the book of Nehemiah. We've been talking about this man, Nehemiah, who uh, is considered one of the great leaders in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the job that he did in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem has been, have been in textbooks. It's been written about. Uh, it's an amazing story, but we're trying to take a closer look at how God used Nehemiah and what God's intent was in the story of Nehemiah and how it maybe applies to us uh, today. And so just a quick reminder, uh, Nehemiah was the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, uh, the Persian king. Historically, uh, if you remember, the Babylonians conquered uh, Jerusalem. They tore down the walls. They ransacked the temple. They took all of the things valuable, all of the gold, all of the uh, sacred ornaments out of the temple, uh, took them to Babylon. Now, about 50 years later, the Persians come in and they conquer uh, the Babylonians. They take all those things, plus all of the people that the Babylonians had taken in exile. Now, many of them are moved to Persia. So, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, is arguably one of the most powerful men in the world. And the, the people in Jerusalem are under his rule. And Jerusalem is in ruins. The temple's been ransacked, the wall has been torn down, the gates are torn down, they're completely vulnerable, they're helpless. And somebody has an idea, let's go get help. And uh, Hananiah, Hananiah is the brother of Nehemiah, takes some friends, takes some men, they go to make an 800 mile trek, uh, trek to, uh, to Susa, which is the winter palace of the Persian Empire, and they go to Nehemiah and they tell him the problem. Nehemiah is uh, one of the Hebrews, but he is in exile uh, with the Persians, and he is the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes. Now, being a cupbearer doesn't sound all of that impressive when you just hear the idea of cupbearer. What do you do, carry a cup? You bear a cup, right? I mean, that's that, but it, that's, it's a much bigger job. It's a much more important job because in those days, the cupbearer of the king was the one who brought the wine cup to the king. He tasted it first. Uh, he tasted the food first to make sure that nothing was poisoned, to make sure everything was safe, and then they would allow the king to eat and drink. So you can imagine how much the king must have trusted Nehemiah to make him his personal cupbearer. He was an official in the palace. He lived like a king. He ate like a king. He was with the king all of the time, uh, constantly helping him, constantly there, and the king trusted him with his very life. And so that's who Nehemiah is trusted by the king. His brother comes with some others and they, and they tell him the story about the destruction of Jerusalem, about the, the shambles that they find in Jerusalem. And the story is that it breaks Nehemiah's heart. What we read in the first part of Nehemiah is that when he hears the story, he weeps, he fasts and prays, 
He's overcome with grief. Not just that, that Jerusalem had been ransacked, not just he knew all of that. He had lived with those stories all of his life, but what he knew about Jerusalem is that it was the centerpiece of God's promise to his people, that he was gonna create a great nation, that he was gonna keep his promises through the people of Israel, through the city of Jerusalem. It was the holy place, the temple, the holy place of the whole history of Israel, and now it's in shambles. Now it's destroyed. God's promises, God's place, where the Messiah was you know, gonna come from, Jerusalem, the Israelites, all of this was crumbling around. And, and Nehemiah had heard these stories since birth and it broke his heart to hear what had happened. And so what we see in Nehemiah is that he begins with prayer. And it strikes me as sort of interesting that why is it so difficult for us to pray you know, typically what happens is something really bad happens or something really big's coming up in our lives and we do everything that we possibly can to solve it. We do everything that we possibly can to fix the problem, to, to move forward with what it is. And then when we finally get to the point where it just everything's come undone, everything's a disaster, we can't move any further, we're completely uh, devastated, then we say, God, please help me. I've done everything I can now. I've worked as hard as I can. I've tried as hard as I can. I can't do anything else. And the question is always, why don't we go first to the Lord? That's exactly what we get in Nehemiah. The first thing that he did was take this problem, take these circumstances to God. He prayed and then he planned. And it was four months later that he's at the table with the king and the king looks at him, Artaxerxes, and, and, and he says, Nehemiah, you look horrible. What's the problem? And Nehemiah tells him the story of the plight of the people in Jerusalem, of the poverty, of the devastation, of, of the needs that they have. And Artaxerxes looks at Nehemiah and says, what do you need? And Nehemiah says, well, no, I didn't, I don't, I'm, I'm, we're good. I, I just want to, I just feel bad about it. I mean, I just sort of hoping something might happen, but I, I no, Nehemiah doesn't do any of that. Nehemiah has a plan. When Artaxerxes says, what do you need? The scroll starts to roll down to the floor, right? And he's got a whole list of things. He's saying, here's what we need. We need wood and we need, we need metal and we need people to help us. And we need, you know, I need letters to all of these people so that when we go to them for resources, they're ready to help us. And they know that you're supporting this and you're behind this. And he has this whole plan that he had prayed. He had asked God to help him. And when the king says, what do you need? he was ready with his list. And the story says that, that King Artaxerxes gave him everything that he asked for. He gave him everything that he needed. Well, now, <laughs> now what do you do? I mean, you see a, a huge need and you ask God to help you and then God provides everything and then all of a sudden things get real okay, now I need to leave the palace. I have to go. I mean, none of these things are gonna help us here. None of these resources are gonna solve the problem here. I've gotta leave the palace. And so the next thing for Nehemiah was that he had to leave the safety and the comfort of the palace, uh, of being with the king, of his position, uh, all the power, all the authority, all of the luxury that went with that. He had to leave the, the palace. Suddenly everything gets real for him and he has to go to Jerusalem and take those resources and serve him. 
And there's a quote that I love that, that I always think of when I think of the story of Nehemiah, and it's from uh, a man named Bob Pierce who is the founder of World Vision, and I hope we have it up here. Yep, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. That's what happens to Nehemiah. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. That his heart was broken over the plight over the destruction in Jerusalem. And and, you know, part of our prayer is in our lives is, Lord, let my heart be broken over the things that break your heart. That's what I want. I want my priorities to be your priorities. I want to know what you're interested in. I want to know what you're doing. I want to get in the middle of whatever you're doing in the world. Break my heart for the things that break your heart. Because often, I get all tied up in things that really don't matter. I get all tied up in things that are about me. I get all tied up in things about what, things that make me comfortable and make me feel more secure and make me feel better. And the prayer is, Lord, break my heart over the things that break your heart. Make me mindful, make me aware of the things that you really want. And that's where Nehemiah was. And that's when things really got real because now you have to leave the palace and you have to go to Jerusalem. We want to talk about that this morning because when Nehemiah leaves, he gets to Jerusalem, and isn't it always the case that you hear the story and you hear about the need and, and you wanna to try to do something to help, and then when you actually get there, isn't it always worse than you thought? Isn't it always in worse shape than, than you were told? They just couldn't describe it enough, and you get there and you realize, oh my goodness, this is way worse. This is way harder than I thought it was going to be. This is way more complicated. And Nehemiah gets uh, to Jerusalem, and he sees that things are worse than he ever imagined uh, for a couple of reasons. But one is that the people that lived in Jerusalem had been there for a long time, and they were used to the rubble. They were used to the, the mess. They were used to the chaos. And in some, in some ways, they didn't even see it anymore. Do you have anything at your house, maybe in your garage? No, no you're saying no right away. How did you know where I was going with this, right? Seriously. You have something in your garage, you have something in your house, and you're so used to walking by it that you don't even notice it anymore until you're having company maybe, right? And then uh, we got to do, we got to clean the garage. We got to clean the backyard. We got this mess on the side of the yard. We got to do something. All of a sudden, this flurry of activity all of a sudden becomes a big deal. But, but we've been living with it forever and not even paying attention to it anymore. And, and there were people in Jerusalem who been living in the chaos and living in the devastation for so long that, that they just gave up to it doing anything about it. And Nehemiah shows up. And, and you know what's interesting is that Nehemiah shows up and as soon as he shows up, some other guys show up too. There's a guy named Sanballat. And Sanballat is the, the, the governor of Samaria. And he's on one side. And, and then there's another guy that shows up with him, and Tobiah. And he's a Moabite, and, and he's a leader. And, and, uh, and he shows up. And later, a guy named Geshem is going to show up. And, and he's, one, he's an Arab, and he oversees some Arab kingdoms around uh, Jerusalem as well. And all of a sudden, the opposition shows up, and there are all these people that, that don't want the wall to be rebuilt. They don't want Israel to survive. They are the natural enemies of the people of Israel. They're the natural enemies of people in Jerusalem. They don't want them to succeed. And not only does Jer- Nehemiah get to 
Jerusalem and see that it's worse than he thought, but now all of these enemies of Jerusalem show up and they don't want this to succeed. So what's Nehemiah do? It's a great little passage in, starting in chapter two, verse 17. Uh, and actually, even before that, in verse 11, uh, Nehemiah goes out. He says, so I went to Jerusalem and I was there for three days. And verse 12 says, I arose in the night and I had a few men with me and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me but the one on which I rode and I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring and the dun gate and I inspected all of the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And here's what Nehemiah does. He waits for three days and then he gets up at night and there are two things that I want you to remember about this. The first thing is that he took a few people with him. He took a few people with him and he surveyed the walls of Jerusalem. When you're walking into a new situation or you're walking into a hard situation, do you have a few people that you can take with you? If, if you were to take this, the paper for the sermon notes that I know you're just scribbling as fast as you can uh, right now, but if you were to pause for a second, sarcasm, um, if you were to pause for a second, could you write down some names of the people you would call to go with you in the middle of the night? Do you have a few names of people that you do life with that are so committed to you, that are your team, people you trust? You trust their wisdom, you trust their courage in your life, you, you trust them with everything that you have. Do you have that few in your life? Because those are the people that Nehemiah called to go with him that night. That he didn't want to go uh, when the opposition, when those other rulers and those guys were there to taunt them and to maybe criticize their work and maybe try to stop them. But he also didn't want to go and have people in Jerusalem say, this is impossible, don't even try it, or have other people say, it's okay, it's not that bad, really. We can just move a few rocks. We're going to be fine. Don't even, don't even try this. He, he didn't want any of that. He went at night so that he could take a good, hard look at the damage, see what needed to be done began to formulate his plan, and he took a few men with him. We need people in our lives. We need to know when, when trouble comes, we need to know when challenge comes, we need to know who are those people that will go out with me. And if you don't have those, I would encourage you to work on that list. Who are they? Get into a small group. Get, get in, do something, initiate something where you have those people around you that you can call on. So that's the first thing. He took a few people with him and then the second thing he did is he surveyed the wall. He wanted to know firsthand what needed to be done. He didn't want to just get a report and read it. He didn't want to just hear from somebody else. He wanted to see for himself so that he would know exactly what needed to be done to, prepare, to, to repair the wall in Jerusalem, to create safety and security for the people in Jerusalem, to accomplish what he believed God had called him to. So he went out in the middle of the night and he surveyed the wall. And he looked at it, he hit every gate, and he hit every spot and every vulnerable place. And he began to see what needed to happen. <laughs> and then he approaches the people in Jerusalem. And verse 17, he says, you see the trouble we're in. This is a mess, you guys. We're in deep trouble. He, he said, Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. This is worse than we thought. We're in deep trouble. We're vulnerable to every enemy around us. He, he said, 
uh, come let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And he told them of the hand of God that had been upon, he said, and I told them of the hand of God that had been upon me for good and also the words of the king that had been spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They started to spread rumors. They started to say other things. And here's what Nehemiah in verse 20, and he said, I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we are his servants and will arise and build and you have no portion or no right or claim in Jerusalem. So there. So here's what happened. He, he surveys the wall and then he says, this is in ruins and we need to do something. And so, but let me tell you how God has been at work already. He said, God has been preparing this for a long time. He's been preparing me for a long time that I heard the stories of the people of Israel from my birth on. I knew that God had promised us something great. I knew that God had established Jerusalem. I knew this was a special place to God and I've known those stories. That's why it broke my heart when I heard that the walls had been destroyed because I know those stories and then somehow I end up at the palace of the king and I become his cupbearer. And God puts me in that position that when you come and ask for help, that I have access to those resources that God had already gone, that God had been preparing me in ways that I didn't even understand, that I would have never known. And then the king had favor with me that God had already prepared the heart of the king and he gave us everything that we need. Look at what's already happened. And the God who has done all of that is going to finish the job and we're gonna repair the walls and God is gonna do the thing that he promised. And isn't that true in our lives that so often in our lives, we don't know what's coming ahead and we have no sense of it and we may see nothing in our life, no pattern, no work in our life that would tell us that we're ready for some great obstacle or we're ready to do something for God, but God is preparing us even when we have no idea what he's preparing us for. You know, Nehemiah, he didn't, he didn't have a plan as a high school senior that, you know, I'm, I'm gonna go get a degree in construction and then I think I'll do grad school in administration so I know how to build and then I know how to manage all of these people and get all of this stuff done. He didn't do any of those things, but God had been preparing him. He had no idea what it was going to be for, but God was at work in his life. And I want you to understand that part of the story of Nehemiah is reminding us that God is doing a work in your life. He's doing a work in my life that he is constantly preparing us. He's constantly shaping us. We don't always know what it is that he shaping us for or preparing us for, but he's constantly at work in our lives. He's faithful in that. He promises us that. And then when the opposition comes, I love his response. Hey, you guys, God has been faithful. Look at what he's already done. He's going to finish the work he started, and you have no part in it. So just stay out of our way or get run over because this is God's work. And he's still God. Last time I checked, you're not. And he had confidence because he was reminded of what God had done. So here's the thing. If, if you took that other portion of your sermon notes this morning and you began to write down ways that God had worked in your life, 
the way God had been preparing you uh, for what you don't know and, and in ways that you don't even understand, but God has been doing things in your life. He's been preparing you. He's been building you. He's been, he's been shaping you for his will and his purpose. You would see dozens and dozens of ways that God has shaped your life, has prepared you for whatever it is that he has for you because he's faithful in that. He does that. And Nehemiah saw that in his own life. He surveyed the wall, he brought others around, he brought his few, he shared the vision with the people, and he dealt with the opposition. And the people of Jerusalem are gonna see their wall built. God is always at work in ways that we don't always understand. But he's faithful to do that. Um, He's faithful to give us a plan to prepare us. He's doing that in your life right now. I'm gonna invite my friend Janet Nevins up and we're gonna share in a little bit of this together. Janet Nevins and Chris Nevins and their son Elijah uh, have had started a, a ministry called Fuel the Mission and they are builders and uh, they have done just some amazing things. Janet's gonna share a little bit of that with us this morning and I'm gonna ask her a few questions. Thank you for doing this. I know Chris is out of town and uh, I sent them an email and said, can, we, can I have you guys share? And she said, you're gonna have to go with second best because Chris is out of town and Chris sent an email quickly back saying, no, actually you're getting the best. Um, but I wanna ask you, there you go. I wanna ask you a couple of questions, all right? The first question, is what sparked your conviction to move from Scottsdale to Ecuador? As I shared in the first service, I brought notes because I've (laughs) got to keep this brief. And those who know me well know that that's not my strength. (laughs) Briefness is not my strength. But I am grateful to be here, to have a chance to share. Thank you. My husband and I actually moved to Ecuador twice. The first time was in 2006. We lived in Southern California at the time. Our son was four years old. And we were in a place in our lives, um, our lives that had taken lots of turns and U-turns and lots of wise decisions and some decisions even before we met that we would change if we could have. But we were in a place in our lives as middle-aged new parents who just wanted to be all in with the Lord. So we decided together that um, we would obey the Gospels. Basically, we just celebrated Easter recently, and we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. But what stands out to me in all four Gospel accounts is that at the end of all four Gospels, in different words, in different situations, Christ says, go. I came, I lived, and I died, and I've been resurrected. Now, I'm sending you. And we didn't know what that would look like. We just knew that we wanted to be ready. We wanted to build treasures in heaven. We didn't want the rest of our lives to be all about us. And so, Combined with obedience was a need, 
We had some friends that are missionaries in Ecuador that needed a school built. And Chris said, that's what I know how to do. So we offered what we knew how to do with what the need was, much like Nehemiah did. I wrote three words down that stood out to me as I was praying over today. The seed that God planted in our hearts, which was like a stirring, it's a little hard, it's abstract, it's hard to define that exactly, but he gave us a stirring, he planted a seed, which became a burden in a good way to do what he was stirring in our hearts, which became a destination. He already knew what that destination was going to be before we did. We were in Ecuador six months that first time. We had sold our home, our cars, we'd given things away, gotten rid of our animals, the whole thing, and didn't know how long we were gonna be there. But we were back six months later, excuse me, when Shay Holmes called my husband and offered him a job for the second time. And we were really grateful. That's how we ended up in Scottsdale. The second time that we left to move to Ecuador was in 2011. We had those same familiar stirrings. This time, however, we went ahead and launched Fuel the Mission um, with some very dear friends that have served on our board from the beginning so that those who came alongside us would have the opportunity to be part of the ministry with us. We're so glad that we did that. Nehemiah 2.11 says it so succinctly, what God had put into my heart. And when he does, then you know that. You might not be able to explain it um, the way that we would like to, but God had definitely put it in our hearts. The second time we went was to restore the Nate Saint house and do some other projects. So in the 1950s, I believe, uh, some young graduates from Wheaton College uh, wanted to be missionaries, and they uh, moved their young families to Ecuador. And uh, one of those young missionaries was Nate Saint, and they built a home in Ecuador uh, to minister to the uh, indigenous people in that area. And the, they, uh, those tribes came, one of the tribes came, and killed those young men. Uh, their wives later came back and uh, through their ministry, thousands and thousands of Ecuadorians have come to Christ. Uh, so uh, what Janet and Chris and Elijah were able to do was to restore the original Nate Saint house uh, to build an addition to it. Uh, and God's really used that. I'm getting into your story just a little bit, but I wanted you to share with that little prelude, uh, how did God meet you during your time in Ecuador. I'm gonna use those three words again. The seed, at the seed stage, God met us by watering the stirrings with his word through missionary stories of others who had left comfort and served God um, around the world and through our friends, through our family members that were encouraging to us. During the burden stage, he blanketed us with peace indescribable. Both times we went through the process of um, reducing our belongings to what would fit into a 10 by 10 storage room. And um, 
while it feels really good to purge, it's a long process. Sometimes it's a painful process. But he gave us such a peace that's hard to describe. And I know that people, many, have said to me over the years, I could never do what you did. I could never walk through what you walked through. But really, neither could I. God, when he, when he plants the seed and when he stirs your heart and when he gives you a burden, he provides this peace and joy that are um, just otherworldly. Only he can do that. So even though some of those steps were difficult, he definitely gave us a peace about it. He provided many people that walked along that path with us. And then at the destination, while in Ecuador, on both occasions, he provided shelter, workers, materials, language guidance, strength, health, wisdom, and favor. There were so many ways that he brought things to fruition that we could never have done by ourselves. And then, along the way, we, we were surprised with some wonderful gifts, things that we totally didn't expect. For example, we got to meet um, many missionaries who had lived and worked and um, knew Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and several of these really famous missionaries. Um, we got to fly deep into the jungle and be part of a Bible dedication ceremony with a tribe that had no written language. And Frank Drown, who was a friend of those missionaries, lived and worked for 30 years in the jungle and took their non-written language and wrote it down so that they could have a Bible in their own language. And we got to be part of the ceremony where they um, walked up and got their very first Bible. There's just no words to describe that. So there were lots of little <clears throat> treats along the way. And another one that we'll never forget was the opportunity to meet three of the ancient ones, they're called now, three of the Waurani warriors who were actually involved in the slayings of the missionaries. We had no idea that we would have a chance to meet them, but God planted them right across the street from us. Their grandsons were working on the house with us, and we got to tour them through the house and spend the day with them. They all now follow God's path because of this um, story. It was really fun. Mm. So the final question is how, uh, I know God had been preparing you. I know God uh, used you in ways that you couldn't even imagine. But how did you deal with opposition during that time? Nehemiah faced Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. And how, how did you face the opposition and what kind of opposition did you encounter? We didn't expect opposition, <laughs> which was pretty naive, I'm sure, because Ecuador is a Catholic country, so it's, it's not like India, where we also get to serve now, which is totally not a Christian country. So uh, we went there rather naive. We went there willing, but not really sure what to expect. The first time that we went, we had some personal opposition with just some personalities. There were some conflicts with some of the folks that we were sent there to work with, which were difficult for us because it felt like inside our camp. Um, it wasn't from outside people. That was hard on our hearts, but about six months in when the school was almost finished, um, 
a representative from Shea called again and said, we have a job for you waiting in Arizona. If you're just about done, if you think you might be coming back. So we went with the intent to stay as long as was needed. We had no idea that we would back, be back after only six months, but we followed God back here and he brought us to North and to all of you, which we're grateful for. The second time that we moved, the first opposition was actually from uh, the mission organization, Mission Aviation Fellowship, which is a name that many of you know. MAF is a missionary aviation organization that is worldwide. The Saint House was actually located on their property. And um, when Chris first went and took a few friends to check it all out, they said, hey, we just don't think we're interested. This is a big project. This is a giant wooden house in the middle of a jungle. We don't have the funds for this. We don't really know what we would do with all of this. But this story, this story of these five missionaries that were martyred in the jungles of Ecuador was like the shot heard around the world, literally. It was in Life magazine. Everybody knew about it, that it had happened. And God still uses that story to call young people and older people into God's work every year. Hundreds visit this location. And so we did uh, what we knew to do, which was we prayed and we waited to see if this familiar stirring was from God. Not long afterwards, we got an email from the gentleman in charge that basically said, if God's calling you to do this, who are we to stand in the way? We took that as a yes. So once again, we sold the house, got rid of the pets, the cars, all the stuff, got that 10 by 10 storage room, and off we went. Not sure how long it would be that we would be there. Um, but it was wonderful getting to be part of that project. Many, many joys, lots of hard work, but it was very fun. Just to be able to have a part of that story, just a small chapter in that story is such, um, is, uh, such a treat for us. The next project that we built in Ecuador was a pastor's training center that was not down in the jungle. It was up in the Andes Mountains for another um, missionary couple that we know, and while we were on that project site, we were living in a little 250 square foot bodega, which is where the future caretaker would live. And several months into that project, um, we were victims of a crime. Seven men who were armed with every kind of weapon, machine guns, machetes, um, pistols, uh, broke into our home that night. Um, and for three hours, they took everything except us. They took everything off the car, all the equipment, our personal belongings, um, our appliances. They took and took and took, and it was pretty terrifying. Um, but I tell you, I don't have time today, but the things that the Lord did to prepare us for that day, um, for weeks, beforehand, the way that he took care of us during the crime, the way that he provided for us afterwards, is a story that only he can tell. So many times, his favor and grace and mercy was on us. So we came back to the States that summer, pretty broken. Um, we dealt with opposition the only way we knew to deal with it. We uh, cried and we 
prayed and we waited once again. We didn't know if there would ever be another project for Fuel the Mission. All we knew is that we were still ready, still willing to do whatever he wanted us to do. Um, since that time, we've operated from our home base here in Scottsdale with the help of our church, with the help of our board, with the help of many of you who are part of that ministry. Shea Holmes offered Chris a job for the third time. So he had quit them twice to go do this work. That's just the Lord's blessing on our family. We prayed and asked God, how do you want to use us from the States? We're back. We didn't know we would be back a year and a half later, but here we are. What do you want to do? And since that time, it's looked differently than we thought, but we got to finish the Pastors Training Center. We got to work with Living Water International to dig a well in Liberia. We got to build a home in India for 19 little girls rescued from infanticide. We've been part of building a sports camp in India where hundreds of slum kids come and hear about Jesus. We're currently working on a home back in Ecuador again for adolescent girls rescued from sex trafficking. And soon we're gonna start building the second story of that camp center. And we don't know the end of the story. We don't know what's next. We're grateful to get to do this. We are simply amazed that we can travel back and forth. It may be that we live on site again at some point um, when we launch our son from the nest. We don't really know what lies ahead, but we do know that we are all qualified. Um, and I'm so grateful that my husband, as the leader of our home, was willing to say, you know what? We don't bring perfection to the table, but we bring a willingness to the table. Thank you. No, thank you. And, um, you know, um, Janet, uh, a lot of people listen to these stories. It's remarkable. And, and, uh, but this is you, right? And, of course, she's what, you're what, 6'2"? <laughs> and this booming voice. Uh, uh, God's been preparing you in ways through really hard times in your life and through good times in your life for how he was going to use you. And, uh, you know, uh, if you ever look up in the dictionary phrase that says, you know, great things come in small packages, it's a picture of, uh, the ne it's, it's a picture of Janet. Because she's one of the most courageous people that I know. And she's been available to the Lord and I don't know what God is preparing you for, but when we make ourselves available to him, what we find out is that he's been doing that work all along the way, all the time. Uh, he's been preparing us for what it is that he has, but, there, but when thing, things get really real when you leave the castle Things get really real when you actually leave and go. And, and what, what we've found is, is that God uses it both ways. And, and sometimes we try to think about our lives as, um, you know, God, you know, there's something really dramatic like moving our family to Ecuador and getting held up by, you know, seven guys and all of this stuff. But I was thinking about this at the early service and I shared this little story about um, our family. And, and when our oldest son, Caleb, was about 13, thank you, about 13, 
Yes. Uh, he was going at it with his mom, and uh, uh, and so uh, as thirteen-year-olds were due, he um, went to his room and gently closed the door behind him, which is a tip-off. I probably should go in there. And so I, I go in his room, and he's laying on his bed, and and I um, I lay down on his bed for a couple minutes, and then I just said to him, you know, uh, Caleb, you got the world's greatest mom. You can either fight that for the next four years, or you can say, I got the world's greatest mom. This goes with the territory. She's gonna hold me accountable. She's gonna challenge me. She's gonna push me because that's what she's called to do, and that's what God's made her uh, to do. So, you know, let's make the call right now. How, how you, what are you gonna do with that? Fortunately, he made a really good decision, um, and, uh, and he's a pastor now, you know, today. But, um, but God uses, God calls us all to different things. He calls us all to, but they're all important things. I've often thought that I don't know the name of Billy Graham's dad. Do you, Billy Graham's dad, I mean, I'm sure a couple of you know, but I don't, I don't know the name of Billy Graham's dad, but I would have loved to have met him. I would have liked to have shaken his hand and said, nice job, right? I don't know your name, you're not a famous guy, nobody but has written a book about you, but way to go. You're Billy Graham's dad, whatever you did, man, I, I'd like to do that. Uh, that's spectacular. God doesn't call us to great things to make us famous, he calls us to great things so that we can be used to build his kingdom, so that we can be used for his service, for the things that he calls important. That's what he calls us to do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege that we have to worship and serve you and for all the work that you've done. Thank you for Janet and Chris and Elijah and their courage and their heart for you and their um, desire to serve. Lord, thank you that you've called all of us to serve, that you are equipping us, that you're, you're shaping us, Lord, for your work. And Lord, we simply ask that you would give us the courage to lean into whatever it is that you're doing in our lives so that when that moment comes, when it's time to leave the palace, Lord, that we, uh, that we trust you, that we know that you have been at work in our lives. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, We'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in for our continuing study in the book of Nehemiah. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, let's rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. And I don't know what God's shaping you for. I don't know what he's equipping you for. But I know that if it's for his kingdom, he will bless you and he will be with you. Uh, my prayer is simply this, that we would rest in the assurance that God is going to use us, that God wants to use us, that he's equipping us even when we don't know what it's for. God is shaping us for his service and his work. I love you guys. Have a great day. God bless.